Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans 6. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do give you thanks this morning that you send out your word and it accomplishes the purposes for which you send it. So God, we ask that you would send it out this morning. Teach us, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in this portion of your scriptures. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Helen Perry is the chief medical imaging technologist at Royal Perth Hospital in Western Australia. This simply means that she's in charge of all medical imaging equipment and in charge of all the staff that's associated with, those, with that equipment at the hospital. X-ray machines, CT scans, MRIs, ultrasound machines, all these are under her purview. And part of her role is to acquire state-of-the-art imaging equipment for the hospital so that patients can receive the best scans that today's technology can offer them. So one day last spring, last spring for us, this was fall in Australia, just as the pandemic was on the rise and the world was in disarray, she was supervising the installation, the setup and the startup of a new cancer screening device. This was an upgrade from their previous device. It was going to offer clearer scans, more precise scans of the body so that doctors could offer more precise diagnoses. But due to the pandemic, Western Australia was limiting cancer screening services. And in an effort to reduce the waste of personal protective equipment, the hospital was reducing these screening offerings as well. And the lockdown restrictions in Western Australia were so strict that it prevented product specialists from GE from even entering into the hospital to offer the proper training that the staff technicians required. So, in an effort to be a good boss and in an effort to support her staff, Helen volunteered to be the very first screening patient on this new state-of-the-art screening equipment. She took this cancer screening, she went back to her office, she went about her day and her week as if nothing had changed. But you can probably tell where this is going. About a week later, she received an unexpected visit from her doctor. The doctor told her that they saw a suspicious dark spot in her her scan. And they needed to do an ultrasound and they had to do a biopsy to figure out what what was going on and how to treat it and even if it was something big. So this seemingly benign cancer screening actually turned into the exposure of a malignant tumor. Now thankfully it was the very early stages and they caught it in time to do a simple procedure and offer radiation therapy and to to treat her cancer. But as Helen was reflecting on those days 
waiting for the results to the biopsy, she, she says that it dawned on her. I had to stop being chief radiographer and I had to start becoming a patient. You see, in a very short moment, Helen's identity transformed and her interaction, her life totally changed along with it. She is no longer a colleague of the doctors. She was one of their patients. She was no longer offering a service. She was the one being cared for. Because of this news, a transformation occurred at the core of, of her identity, and it changed the way she lived. It changed her interactions with the institution she worked for and the people she was around. Brothers and sisters, a core transformation has happened to you. This isn't something outside of you. It's not a situational change. It's not a situational shift. It's a transformation at the core of your being. In Christ, verse 13 says that we have been brought from death to life. The theological term for this is regeneration. God has regenerated you, which means he's produced life. From death, God has produced spiritual life, and this new life changes the way you live here and now. It doesn't cha simply change the way you live in the future, but it changes the way you live now. And verses 12 through 14 elaborate on that change. And it tells us two things. First thing it tells us is that you rebel against sin. Because you've been made alive in Christ, you then rebel against sin. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let, uh, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Paul speaks here of sin having the capacity to reign or to rule over your mortal bodies. But don't think of mortal bodies simply as your, your physical body. It is that. We all know that we can, we can do plenty of sin with our physical body. But it's, when he speaks of mortal bodies here, he speaks of all aspects of your life. It's representative of your whole life lived in this mortal world. Every aspect of your life, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, what you do with your body, what you do with your thoughts, what you look at, what you listen to, the words you say and the actions you take. So it's your whole life that has the capacity to submit to the desires of sin. The sin here, is, it's pictured as a ruler, as a military commander barking out orders based on its desire. But what we know from Scripture and what we know from our personal experience is that sin isn't some external figure. It's not some outside force directing our lives. Sin is something inside us. It's very present in each one of us. Each of us has sinful desires. We have a propensity to give ourselves to these desires as what Paul calls instruments for unrighteousness. To understand this, we can go back to the first pages of Scripture where we see Adam living in harmony with God but then becoming the first instrument of unrighteousness. By one act of sin, he becomes 
the very first instrument of unrighteousness, and the product was death. And each one of us has the capacity to become this instrument of death. One author calls sin the the disruption of harmony, the disruption of the harmony of creation and redemption. So just as sin disrupts the harmony of the garden, it also disrupts our own life. It brings about decay and destruction. And so Paul tells us that we, we have to rise up. We have to not let it reign in our lives. We must rebel against those sinful desires that take up residence in us. He says to his readers that because you've been made alive, as those who have been brought from death to life, don't let sin reign, but stand up against it. Don't go back to the thing that produces death once you've been made alive. It's ridiculous. So what this rebellion takes in us is a conscious awareness of how sin plays out. We have to be aware of our own lives, take a good look at ourselves, ask questions like, what needs to change? Maybe you ask your spouse or a close friend, what, what needs to change? What's wrong? And how then do I go about changing? By asking these questions, by putting them into practice, we learn, not, not overnight, but we learn over time what it means to rebel against sin inside us. We learn how to stop letting greed control the way we use our money. We learn how to stop judging others because they're a little different than us or they do things different than us. We learn how to take a breath and to stop letting our anger control our words. But we have to ask those questions. What needs to change and how do I go about changing? So we rebel against sin that resides deep inside us. And then the second thing that it tells us is that you entrust yourself to God. Look with me at how verse 13 ends. Paul tells us that not only do you rebel against sin, but you present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for unrighteousness or for righteousness. Because you've been brought from death, you entrust your life to God's service. And by doing so, you're employed by him as a weapon for the proliferation of righteousness, for the growth of goodness in, this, in your life and in this world. You actually push back on death by your obedience to God. This act of entrusting yourself, it's not simply a, a one-time act at conversion. It's not just a one-time placing your faith in Jesus. It's a daily activity, a daily routine of entrusting yourself to God. And by giving, your, by giving you life in Christ, God actually invites you into a daily participation of that life in Christ. This participation is one of obedience, learning to walk in the ways of God, living under the word of God, 
giving yourself, trusting yourself to his guidance, allowing yourself to be directed and guided by God, saying with Jesus, not my will be done, but your will be done, and then actually trusting him to live that out. And by this persistent obedience, you become an instrument, a tool for righteousness. Just as instruments for unrighteousness, they bring about death and decay. So instruments for righteousness bring about the restoration of goodness. They bring about life in ourselves and in the world around us. So we learn to walk in God's ways entrusting ourselves to him, righteousness begins to push outside of our own lives. It actually pushes beyond us into the life of others. That's what it means to become an instrument for, unrighteous, or for righteousness. And friends, of course, this righteousness, it remains incomplete in your life and in mine today, but you actually get a small glimpse of the growth of goodness in this world and in your own life. I'll just give you a little snapshot of what that looks like in the Lawler household, particularly in my life. These are confessions of John. Uh, on, on, on Fridays or, or Saturday mornings, I like to get up with the kids and let my wife sleep in. Uh, she works a part-time job, she's a full-time mom. Uh, her life is chaos with those three small hoodlums. So I like to let her sleep in. And I, so I get up with the kids. They're running around like banshees. I make them breakfast. They eat their breakfast. I make my coffee. And then I send the hoodlums to the playroom, which is on the other side of the house. And I sit down with my coffee. And I take a breath. Like, finally, they're alone in the playroom, all three of them by themselves. But inevitably, inev inevitably about three to five minutes into the quiet bliss of drinking my pour over coffee, I hear a, a muffled scream of a child in pain. Inevitably, it's like clockwork. Someone has been struck by a toy sword, likely in the face. A monster truck has been stolen or it's been thrown, or both. A tower of blocks has been destroyed and the architect is in tears. And y'all, my sinful propensity, when my peace has been disturbed and the smell of coffee is ruined by the screeches of children, my sinful propensity is to turn into Arnold Schwarzenegger from Kindergarten Cop. Y'all seen that movie? Stop it! Bursting through the door, yelling at my children, you go to this room, you go to that corner, you go to the other room. But that doesn't produce anything good. It actually only produces fear. It produces decaying relationships with my children. And so what I've learned through the, through the patience of my wife is that the best option for me to trust God in that moment 
is to simply take a breath. Very practically, instead of just running through the door and turning into Papa Arnie, it's to sit down, to take a breath, put my coffee down. That's very practically what it looks like for me to trust God, to entrust my life to God in that moment. And hopefully over time, as I learn to walk in God's ways, being patient with my children as God is patient with me, my children will know what it means to be patient. Righteousness then begets righteousness. I become a useful tool for God, for the proliferation of righteousness in my own house. And, you know, I failed a lot. Probably failed more often than not. But even in those moments of failure, to entrust myself to God is to go to my children and apologize. To let them know that daddy's not perfect, but what they need is daddy, not a dictator. And so I entrust myself to God. What are areas of your life that you need to trust God? What are those areas that you need to change? What are those areas that, where obedience is lacking? Is it at home? Is it at work with your coworkers, with your boss? Is it in your car? What are those areas that you need to trust God and how can you be used by God as an instrument for righteousness to push back on the decay of sin. Now at this point you might be thinking, John, this sounds really delightful to rebel against sin and to entrust myself to God, but it's pretty daunting. That's a daunting task to rebel against the things that feel so familiar and to trust my daily life to God, it's too hard. I can't do it on my own. And you're right, you can't. You simply cannot do it on your own. And if we stopped there, this would just be a sermon about doing more and trying harder. But that's not the gospel. That's not the good news of Jesus. Paul recognizes our predicament and he offers us a promise in verse 14. Look with me there. He says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but you're under grace. What God expects, he also empowers. That's the promise. When God commands you to rebel against sin, and he commands you to present yourself to him, to entrust yourself to him. He actually frees you to do that. The fight against sin isn't a burden that's too heavy to carry. It's not a mountain that's too steep to climb because God provides the necessary resources for you to accomplish the task at hand. He does this by breaking you free from the clutches of sin. For sin will have no dominion over you, not now and not ever. This is a phrase that's repeated after verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And because it doesn't have dominion over him, you've been united to him, and you are not ruled by sin anymore. 
It doesn't have dominion over you. Paul says in Colossians that we've been delivered from the dominion of darkness and we've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, into a new kingdom ruled by a benevolent king. By taking sin into himself and satisfying the law's demands, Christ freed you from sin's power and punishment. To be under the law here is to be under law's, the law's curse and the law's condemnation. It's to stand guilty under the accusation of the law. But to be under grace is to be united to Jesus, to be brought from death to life by the gracious God who now looks on you with the same favor that he looks on his son. And while sin remains present in your life, it has no power over you. It remains present only as a powerless squatter, as a counterfeit usurper, but not as the ruler. Jesus has defeated it once and for all. By his own death and his resurrection, he has trampled down death. And under God's grace, he activates a great reversal. He frees you to do to sin what sin causes you to do to God. Sin is rebellion, and God empowers you to rebel against the sin that resides inside you. You don't have to anymore. It's no longer in control of you. You are freed from its clutches and brought under the grace of God. So under God's grace, something fundamental has changed. You've been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. Something at the core of your humanity has changed in Jesus. And as you appropriate this new life, you learn how to rebel against the sin that remains in you. You cease to be used by it as an instrument for unrighteousness. And instead, you learn to entrust yourself to a gracious God. And you are employed by him as an instrument for the growth of goodness in your life and in the world around you. Friends, he's freed you to do that. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks that in Jesus you have brought us from death to life. That in him you've trampled down death and it has no power over us anymore. Though it remain imperfect, we ask, Lord, that you would teach us to walk in your ways. Teach us to present ourselves to you and to entrust our whole lives to you. May our whole lives be a sacrifice of thanksgiving. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.